Okay, this morning's reading is taken from 1 Samuel and chapter 25. I'm going to start with a brief summary of verses 1 to 17, because it's quite a huge chapter. Um, So we start basically where a wealthy farmer in southern Judea, called Nabal, has insulted David, the anointed king. David is out for revenge to kill Nabal and his household, and a servant goes to Nabal's wife, Abigail. He reports that David and his men have been very good to them, but Nabal's insult has now put them in danger of their lives. He pleads with her, Think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. So we join the text now at verse 18. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sears of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them onto donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, It's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness, so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my lord sent. And now, my lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, Since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift, which your servant has brought to my Lord, be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a long-lasting dynasty for my Lord, because you fight the Lord's battles, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as far as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he has promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, 
who has kept me from harming you. If you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. Good morning, everyone. Um, uh, just as, let's just pray again very briefly as we, as we begin. Lord, as we open your scriptures, so we ask that what we know not, you will teach us. What we have not, you will give us. And what we are not, you will make us, that we may be the people you have purposed us to be. Amen. Well, it's been great fun uh, reading this uh, long, long chapter and studying it over these weeks. And thank you very much to, uh, to Julie, wherever she's gone, uh, for such a lovely reading. And um, as I was listening along, it rather reminded me of, of two weeks ago when we were reading about a, a, another family crisis where King uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, uh, goes behind his father's back. And of course, today we have a rather similar situation where we meet a wife who goes behind her husband's back. And to step outside the framework of trust, unity, and headship in marriage, as prescribed by God, risks relationship meltdown. Uh, typically, it is really not a recommended strategy. Please take note. Um, however, such is the gospel crisis at hand, she is impelled, like Jonathan, to prioritise God's greater purpose to save all parties. And through her actions, not only does she honour God, but she also steadies the affairs of state uh, by teaching God's chosen king, David, a valuable lesson in trust. And at the same time, she rescues her undeserving husband's household from destruction at the hands of David. And her name is Abigail. In, and in being a humble peace bringer between two hostile men, she even pre-echoes the Christ who will bring peace between God and humanity, currently divided by the same foolishness and wickedness as her husband. So there's an awful lot here. Let's see what we can make of it. And the plan that I've uh, devised is that we're going to review what happens through the chapter in its context and try and understand why this conflict arises uh, between Nabal and David and potentially even between God and David and how it's resolved by the blameless uh, Abigail. We're then going to look deeper into these three characters in the chapter to learn what God has to teach us, not about them so much, but about himself and his plans for us. Because remember, the Old Testament is all about the character of the person of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus. It's here to give us a fuller and richer understanding of him and uh, his offer of salvation to us from all the ills of this life. So let's get started. So firstly, uh, the story in its original context 
the conflict and resolution. And I've just put up some main points on, on two slides, just um, so if you do nod off at any stage, you can, you can catch up. But please don't. It's good stuff. Now, um, with seemingly bad timing at the start of the chapter, the prophet Samuel dies. With the job of putting God's uh, newly appointed King David on the throne, still unfinished. The disgraced Saul is clinging to power and is intent on killing David. David had to run for his life into southern Judea uh, and, and the wilderness there. And uh, there, being ever God's good shepherd, he provides security services to the local farmers and generally cares for the community in return for food and provision at harvest time. And we meet one of one such farmer who receives this protection called Nabal. Uh, but he's a very brutish man whose nickname is Fool. Uh, it doesn't mean he's stupid. In fact, he's an excellent businessman. He's very wealthy. And success has earned him uh, marriage to an intelligent and beautiful wife. But he's foolish because he's proud, he's arrogant, godless. He cares for no one but himself and his own comfort. Uh, that's what makes him a fool. When uh, David comes to him, they're both Calebites. Cal they both descend from Caleb, if you remember Caleb in, in the Exodus. There's also that tribal link. He doesn't care. Well, Nabal is, of course, at sheep-shearing time, about to get a big payday. And David's men quite rightly expect to receive at least some sort of recompense in, uh, in payment for their services. It was the custom of the day, and quite unthinkable that anybody should not actually comply. But that's exactly what he does. And even worse, he rudely rejects and scoffs. But David, who, let's not forget, is the Lord's anointed king. He's not just anybody. I mean, it's equivalent to people being openly blasphemous against Jesus, who is the ultimate and perfect Lord's anointed. And, of course, David then complains in verse 21, It's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness, so that nothing of his was missing and he's paid me back evil for good. He's quite justifiably humiliated by the farmer's insult, and he swears to take vengeance by killing Nabal and his men. Well, justified or not in his grievance, uh, David is overreacting. Having just spared Saul in chapter 24, who's been trying to kill him, now he plans to destroy a man and all his household, and the man's only insulted him. I mean, his normal constraint has become lost in a flush of anger. Just like Nabal, he's let his self-pride replace wisdom with foolishness. So now we have two wrongs, two men whose testosterone-filled hackles are raised. You can just imagine it, can't you? And they're set on this course that's going to benefit neither party. As David's army of 400 men marches on Nabal, swords drawn. Where 
is Samuel when you really need him to step in with the steadying hand of God's counsel. He's no longer there. So enter Abigail, God's new voice of reason. One of the servants in the household wisely reports uh, the crisis to his godly and gifted mistress of the house. And Abigail is forced to act urgently to avoid conflict and bloodshed. And courageously she rides out to meet this approaching army of David and his revenge-bent militia. And then in 23 to 27, she submits to David by dismounting and prostrating herself before him. It's a very visual, strong action. Although she is completely innocent, she takes on herself her husband's culpability in verse 24, saying, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. And she pleads with him for forgiveness for her household and her husband. She acknowledges her husband's godless character, her habitual foolishness, whilst at the same time praising David's noble character as one blessed by God. And she makes good Nabal's offering of provisions which he should have made in the first place. But the real masterstroke of the speech, I think, is in 28 to, 20, to 31, where she reminds David of God's future plans for him, an appeal based on scripture. She talks David out of perpetrating a moral crime, which would be a stain on his coming kingship, and which he would bitterly regret. She reminds him that it is God who will establish his house, and urges David to wait on God and for him to act as exactly as he's been doing quite wisely with Saul. He need not save with his own hand or by taking vengeance himself, verses 25 and 26. Finally, she simply asks David to remember her when he does come into his kingdom, verse 31. Interesting, isn't it? It's exactly what one of the thieves at Golgotha, um, crucified with Christ, said to Christ then. You know, like that thief, she honours the Lord's anointed, whilst her husband's rather like the other thief, who only scoffs. Isn't that a fascinating little pre-echo? I found it interesting. Well, as a result... As, as, as God's voice of reason uh, and moral conscience comes, Abigail manages to diffuse the crisis. David listens to her and his temper cools, thankfully. Abigail's right, he realises, and he's foolishly forgotten God's word. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's in Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, and it's again quoted by Paul in Romans Chapter 12, 19. So he spares Nabal's household. He's learnt that he really can trust God to establish his throne and deal with all his enemies, including the murderous Saul. And Abigail then returns to her husband to admit the intervention she's made. And then 10 days later, God does act in vengeance against 
the foolish Nabal on David's behalf to underline the lesson for David. And Nabal dies and David is vindicated of the injustice that he suffered. It's swift, it's effective, and David has nothing to do with it. Finally, verses 39 to 42, Abigail is rewarded by God by becoming David's queen and his wife. Well, as we begin to think about what this chapter means, it's a good principle in in Bible is to see what it's telling us about God. Because, after all, he's the real central character, not the little characters we see running around in any particular story. But being Westerners, we always try and identify ourselves with those characters, don't we? So let's try and put that aside in an Old Testament story like this and say, what does it tell us about Jesus, uh, about uh, God's character, and how, therefore, he relates to us and we can relate to him? Of course, Paul picks up this idea in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, where he says that these Old Testament stories were written down as warnings to us Christians on whom the culmination of the ages has come. That's what, how he says we, sh- you know, the the, the uh, focus that we should bring to these stories. So that's what we're going to try and do as we look at these three protagonists in the story and how God responds to them as individuals and then deals with them with their own individual attitudes and relationships. Hopefully, that's going to help us understand something of how God relates to us now. So let's turn to our second big uh, section and the three character studies, which I've called the fool, the rash, and the wise. So firstly, Nabal, God brings ruin to the godless fool. The whole drama here is precipitated by this godless man who cares only for himself. His life is focused on physical attainment, money, status, comfort, and a beautiful wife. Nabal knows nothing about God and in his ignorance ends up insulting God's anointed king. It's it's a picture of how not to relate to God. He's full of worldliness, full of self-importance and confidence. He's ignorant of God and he's biblically illiterate. And to make matters worse, he's unteachable because he won't even listen. And his ungodliness leads him into foolish living so that everybody gives him this nickname of fool. And he eventually succumbs to a guilty judgment and destruction at God's hands. And Psalm 1 warns us, doesn't it, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Nabal's story is a a case in point. You cannot ignore God and you cannot ignore his word and expect to reach heaven. It won't happen. Well, this story, you know, this life is our one chance, is it not, to sort out our relationship with God, to let Jesus deal with our sin, to be sealed with the Holy Spirit for heaven. That's life's purpose. That's what life's all about. Nabal's is a wasted life. In spurning David, he's spurning Jesus and his chance of heaven. 
That's how high the stakes are here. And this wasted life describes, unfortunately, the tragedy of the majority of people up and down this country. But the Bible, unfortunately for them, doesn't pull punches to save their blushes. As here, it calls them fools because they don't take God seriously. They just close their ears to God and his counsel and, uh, and his gospel message and the gospel message that Christians bring to them. But the consequences for them are disastrous because come judgment, God takes their foolish choice, as he calls it, very seriously. They didn't listen to him. Now, God won't listen to them. Then it'll be too late. What about David? God correcting the rash, forgetful believer. David's gifted, courageous and godly, described by God in chapter 13 as a man after my own heart who will do everything I want him to do. Samuel had anointed David to establish the dynasty that will lead directly to Jesus, God's ultimate anointed one, the perfect king. But David, alas, is himself far from perfect, as our story shows. Here, we find him messing up, as all of us believers can and do from time to time. And in a moment of emotional drama, he forgets a lesson uh, about God that he should know very well. But of course, to his credit, when God speaks to him through Abigail, he's wise enough to listen and accept God's rebuke with grace. It's very different to the unlistening Nabal. And despite being a very powerful leader, David has a teachable heart that takes correction. There's no arrogance here. Reminded of God's word, he repents of his loss of control and his foolish, rash vow. All the better for Abigail, to whom he is now indebted. And aren't we all very grateful for that hand that holds us back from what would have been unwise, especially so when we're in positions of authority? If a child at home or a subordinate at work comes to you, we need to be humble enough, don't we, to listen, to calmly think things through, allow ourselves to be taught, reminded, corrected. We don't, each of us, have all the answers. And we need to remember to express thankfulness for the intervention when it's helpful, as David does here. And in the home, too, there's a time, is there not, when a wife must bring such godly correction to a husband, and husbands must respect that. And actually, I would ask husbands, do you ask your wife, wife's opinion of all matters? Do you have sufficient humility to accept her advice, thankfully, when, there's a, when it's better than your own? And I could put that equation the other way around, couldn't I? Perhaps this is a, a useful way to think about it. When God's correction comes to you through whoever it is, be quick to admit the mistake, quick to say sorry, and quick to make amends. And then we have Abigail. God honors the wise model believer. Abigail, too, is a godly believing woman. 
She's a model of wisdom, but more so than that, in Abigail we find something much more amazing. This glimpse of the wise mediator who's come to wi and willingly faced wrath on behalf of foolish sinners, Jesus. Abigail proves, does she not, that it is possible to be focused on God and fruitful in his service and growing spiritually whilst being in a terrible marriage. Her attitude is not, how do I get out of it, but how do I serve the Lord despite the marriage I'm in? Now, we could ask that same question of any situation, a bad job, a lousy school, a medical condition, incapacities of old age, lack of money, whatever might apply to you. Our task as Christians is to remain prayerful and thankful to God, whatever the circumstances, and work through them with him and for him. And who knows how God might reward you after a little patience and endurance, as he does Abigail. Abigail also confirms the need to live your life for God and to know his plans, to read the Bible. That's how you're going to get to know them. She's aware of God's decision to replace Saul with David in this story already. Therefore, when this crisis comes, she's very well equipped to understand the full implications for everyone involved, and especially for God. His plan is top priority. And by putting God first, she manages uh, to protect David, uh, herself, and her household. And while she uh, shows a gentle, thoughtful humility in what she does, Abigail is no shrinking violet, but strong and proactive. She trusts God, and by using the talents he's given her, she's prepared to act on her faith at risk to herself. Now, it's not easy to find courage and step out in the way that Abigail did for the gospel. And we were all encouraged to speak out the gospel, but too often we find ourselves afraid to risk losing friends and colleagues by talking to them about Jesus and telling them the good news. Well, here's a story where God honours Abigail in return for her having that courage for honouring him and resolving matter, and God then resolves matters in a way that actually improves her life. So don't you think you could and should trust God like that? Perhaps if you took the risk to tell your friends, God can work it so that you will keep them as friends and you might even bring them to salvation. I think Abigail's a wonderful example of that. And she's also a model to us of how to confront those who are sinning, our fellow Christians. And it's with humil humility and God-centeredness. There's no arrogance, no condensation or judgment in how she speaks with David, is there? She doesn't talk at him. She brings the counsel of the peacemaker, gently but firmly pointing him back to God and persuading him to turn himself away from his folly. She doesn't say he's wrong, but simply reminds him 
of God's promises and blessings. It's non-confrontational. She let him work it out for himself. The moral decision is much better being his. It's not going to be an effective speech otherwise. And what about you? In such care, is, it is such careful mediation your first reaction? Or do you, uh, or when conflict comes, do you tend to take sides? Which is what human beings tend to do naturally. Do we stop and think and say, no, actually, there's a role for a mediator here. So next time, perhaps remember Abigail and think how you might be a peace bringer. Well, in uh, being blessed by God for her faith, uh, Abigail becomes a blessing to everyone around her. And you, you may have noticed throughout the chapter, we find blessing taken from the faithless and given to the faithful. Kingship is taken from the faithless Saul to the faithful David. The wise and beautiful Abigail is taken from the faithless husband Nabal and is free to marry the faithful King David, the one who, when tested, repented. There are plenty of wealthy, non-believing people like Nabal today for whom it seems nothing can ever go wrong. Whilst decent believers the world over struggle, so many of them in abject poverty, but in God's timing, justice and rebalancing will happen. In favour, not in wealth and worldly success, but it's based on trust and faith in God. Well, strikingly, God uses Abigail as a pre-shadow of Christ, even in the Old Testament. It's not an all-male preserve. Abigail steps into a situation of conflict between God's, between God's king and a worldly foolish man who snubbed that king's offer of peace and fellowship. Humanity as a whole is like Nabal, isn't it? Foolish, godless and thankless and therefore deserving of God's anger and vengeance of death. And into that far bigger situation steps Jesus some centuries later to be a peacemaker too. He offers himself at the cross, the sinless, to make reparation to God for the guilty sinfulness of a foolish humanity. And you may notice some of the other little details that are here. Like Jesus who enters Jerusalem on a donkey, Abigail rides to meet uh, David on a donkey. And she takes her husband's guilt on herself as Jesus takes our guilt on himself. She makes a sacrificial offering to make good the sin of her husband. Jesus gave himself as sacrifice for our guilt. The previously angry king relents of his wrath. And Jesus' death on the cross achieves that with God. God relents of his wrath. When he looks at us, he sees Jesus and forgives. He relents of his anger. That's what Christian peace is. Later in the story, Abigail is rewarded to sit with David on the throne of Israel, justified and in glory, Jesus after his 
sacrifice on the cross of service to others was also raised to glory, but the glory of heaven, and it's something he extends to us. You can share that glory too in heaven. Well, let's review very quickly the, 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 the lessons. First, for the non-Christian who might be here or listening, please don't be ignorant of God. Life's purpose is to sort out your relationship with God. Don't choose damnation. Don't get so preoccupied with money-making or some other worldly pursuit that you ignore the Bible. Underneath each character portrait is the importance of listening to God's word, knowing him personally and putting him first. Don't be like Nabal who demonstrates the sudden ruin that comes on those who do ignore God and reject Jesus because they didn't listen when they had the opportunity. Get to know Jesus. And when? Today. Because there's no second chance. And then there's two lessons, aren't there, for the, not for the believer. Firstly, be a teachable Christian. We need to listen, but for a different purpose. To be corrected when we fail in times of worldly thinking. And forget to stay focused on our Lord. And remember, you cannot say, no, Lord. Those two words don't fit together. If you find yourself drifting, what I find useful is going back to the gospel accounts, to Luke or to Matthew. And I fall in love with Jesus all over again. I think you might find that helpful too. Why does he love you? Secondly, be a faithful Christian, whatever situation you find yourself in in life. For the mature believer like Abigail, look what God can achieve through you. See how he steps into this domestic situation and what, uh, and, and, how he, and what he does if you remain faithful to him, focused on him and on his business. The hardships and circumstances you endure now can be swept away and rewarded with the prize of everlasting life. In fact, not only can they, they will be. And you will be a royal sibling of the glorified King Jesus. Well, just a few lines that are in this wonderful passage. There's so much more I wish I could share with you, but I hope that's given you a taster. Shall we pray as we, we finish? Father, we thank you for the wonderful uh, scripture that opens up so many issues that we deal with and grapple with daily. We can be non-listeners. We can be forgetful of what we've learned. Or we can keep, be mindful of all we've learned and act with wisdom on it. You say to us, if we lack any of these abilities, to ask you for them. So if we have unteachable hearts, Lord, would you give us teachable hearts? If we are forgetful, would you make us those who remember? And if we are faithful, would you keep encouraging us to be like that? And Lord, would you see us safely to that royal eternity of glory with Jesus in heaven? Amen. 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 Amen.